welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast dedicated to the proposition that the shortest lines between creators, communities, and audiences are the best. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Taylor Levy and Seiwei Wang run CWT, an art and design studio that produces an array of items ranging from purely commercial to completely aesthetic. The way they string projects along that spectrum offers a lot of insight into how one can fulfill one's own artistic vision in a world of commerce. They're also the team behind the Pen Type A, a large and ultimately complicated Kickstarter project that we'll get into. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you on. And I, I was reading, uh, I was reading some background about you guys, and I found two lines from an interview you gave two years ago that I'm going to read because I think it, uh, you'll you'll tell me you're not, but I think this illuminates a lot about the two of you and your working methods. Mm-hmm. This is from a Big mm-hmm. Things. And I'll have a link in the show notes. Says, they asked you where you're going next, like literally where you're physically going. And say what you said, as soon as I finish eating <laughs> pasta for breakfast, I'm heading to a client's shop to show some of the jewelry design generating software we're writing. And, and then Taylor, your response was to the plotter, hopefully soon because I need to finish and print this drawing and then a few days back in Brooklyn to hang with Seiwei. And I was thinking, does that capture some of the, like, the, the range of stuff you do and also the working aesthetic? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it does. <laughs> That's funny that you found that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I think that that was a great set of questions that we got because we had a fun time answering them. Um, and that was kind of a response that we just came up with on the spot. And it's good to like hear that memory of what, where we yeah. were two years, like ago. two years ago. It was but- funny, too, that we both weren't together at the time and normally mm-hmm. we're together. And that was, I guess, the longest we've probably been apart. Mm-hmm. in the oh, last three funny. years when that's, we wrote that. Because you're like a collective. Your CWNT is the name of the collective company, and you work together and separately, but most of the work you do, you do together? That's right, yeah. we. I mean, we live together, sleep together, eat together, and do work together, and it's been like that for almost four years. And there's, you know, almost not, you know, I think maybe four hours is the longest we stay apart. If one of us goes somewhere. Oh, that's, that's very sweet. And it's good that you can work together. Some people <laughs> some people get cooped up in that kind of thing. But when you have the right working relationship, but you have this range of things, as mentioned in the introduction, is that you're not an art shop. You're not a commercial shop. And we talk a lot on the podcast about the interstices between the commercial parts of what people do when they're creating any kind of work, whether artistic or commercial, and the and that you know purely aesthetic part. And there's points where that meet. And I feel like looking at your array of work, you have a lot of different points uh, of connection, intersection between pure art and commercial work. How do you chart what you do in that space? Is it intuitive or or do you set out to say, we're going to do some amount of art, we devote some of our time and some of it's going to be paying the bills or the art may -hmm. may pay the bills too, I realize too. Yeah, hopefully we kind of started that way. We, well, we put a studio together, not wanting to work for anybody else. And that's really how we started. And in the very beginning, we, you know, we were fortunate enough to like learn a bunch of skills in school and then in grad school, and we wanted to put all this stuff to use. But you know, there aren't that many clients out there asking to make really weird stuff <laughs> that we like to make. So we started out doing a lot of client work, like web-related things or electronics-related stuff, to pay the bills. And I think. You know, four years in, we're trying to flip that equation more and more. And I think we're doing okay with that. Um, But we still do client work, for sure, because we have great clients that we love to work with. 
and some of what you do is more it's towards advertising, isn't it? Or is it to fulfill uh, assignments for say advertising agencies? Mm -hmm. That kind of work happens too. Yeah. Yeah. It's completely varied. The commercial work, I would say Uh, we do a lot of, I guess some of our commercial projects have been a big one for SeaWorld a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago. And what else was there? Uh, Indianapolis. Oh yeah. We worked a lot with animals for some reason in the last couple couple of years. I'm trying to figure out if there's, is there a unifying Um, theme among what you do and how you explore mm-hmm. things. Your your homepage for uh, C W A N D T C W N T dot com. You've got all of these different things going on. I see themes of time and color, um, space, and also trying to defy people's expectations for what they think from things they know, like your GPS finder and and clocks. Is is there is there a theme about that of defying expectations, or does that just arise from the way in which you see the world? Yeah, I think it's mostly just the way we see the world. We we do our best to just make things that we want. Like we really, you know, every morning that we wake up or any free second we have, we're just sketching things or stuff that we want for ourselves. And once in a while, one of those sketches will turn into like a real product or a real app that we make. Uh, and so there... You know, that's kind of really the only unifying thing that holds everything together that we make. It's just that we really wanted this thing and we couldn't find a thing in the world that was like it. So we just went ahead and made it. I think that's a great continuum, too, is that I can't tell which of the things, unless I know about them already, are uh, products that have been instantiated in some form or experiments or just ideas because some of them, the things that I think are most, the, this is, you know, the Museum of Jurassic Technology in, um, in Culver City, California. I don't know. No, I've never been there. Oh my God. You guys have to go to this okay. place. You have to go to this place. Already it's, done. A pl- <laughs> it's, it's an amazing, they, it's full of fake exhibits, sort of. It's like a museum, but the curatorship is defining the notion between what's real and not. And the things that seem most implausible turn out to be real. And the things that seem most likely are fake. And so not to, not to say that anything you're doing is fake, but that there's this line as I look at your products and, and art that the things that I think, Oh, maybe that could actually not be made like, Oh no, that's a product you made in ship. <laughs> but this thing that looks purely, that looks very, very functional is a proof of concept that you've never made. And I mean, like the Google clock is a great, the Google mm. uh, earth clock is really a fascinating thing, but you know, what, what is it? How do you instantiate that as a, as a thing? Is that something that, um, you know, that's a web product or web project. It's not, something i buy i install as an app no uh no it's and it's kind of goes back to another the same thing is like i really wanted this clock where it was made out of google earth views and it was kind of as simple as that and it took a day or two to put together so it wasn't expensive in terms of time or money and it's just like oh this would be cool let's see if that works and then you spend a couple days on it making it and then sometimes it works out and it just works. That's great. And then Taylor, I know one of the projects that's up on the homepage here is the one bit one Hertz CPU. And as someone with a long, uh, my, my first computer I owned in 1979. So I feel like I had a one Hertz CPU. It was probably a megahertz, <laughs> but I feel to go back that far, but that's, that's one of those things that feel, seems like you're pushing uh, when you made this project, you were pushing the limits of everyone's pushing on one end. Were you pushing on the other? Like, let's see how simple we can make something. Yeah. That was something that, that's a, a theme that always interests us, I guess, in the more more in the artwork that we make is how we're, I'm very much inspired by all the technology that's around us. But 
picking out and simplifying the things that happen deep inside that you can't normally see every day. Uh, so taking that, isolating it, and showing it in a way that's simple and beautiful and easy to understand and empowering for people, too, to understand when you see it installed somewhere. Something that's explicable, too. You can take a few sentences to explain it, and then they can appreciate it without having to have a, a half an hour um, lecture on what it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I also like this, um, this the uh, TV Barrow, <laughs> which, yeah. which is both seems incredibly impractical and, and then also strangely practical at the same time. This is a concept. This is something you made for yourselves, not something that you're selling. Uh, we're actually... Very close to production. We are going to sell these things. <laughs> See what I mean? I can't tell which is going to be. <laughs> but it did. That's I mean, great. you know, if you had asked that question maybe a year ago, I would have said, no way. This is just like a thing that we want in our apartment because it's very specific to our yeah, Describe what this is. People can see it. I'll put it okay. in the show notes. But describe what this is. So this is basically a wheelbarrow that's custom built to hold a flat screen TV. Uh, and instead of having a giant, you know, like a thick wheelbarrow wheel, it has a bicycle wheel and a bicycle fork that I basically had lying around that I repurposed to hold uh, a TV. You're, you're solving the problem of that. You don't want this in the room all the time. You want to be able to move it around. And these things are heavy and unwieldy, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So for us, it makes complete sense. Like, 100%. Like, I don't know why... These things didn't exist before because, you know, we don't like the living situation that we're in. We didn't want to put a TV mounted to the wall. We also wanted the ability to put it away or like bring it to the bedroom. And so, you know, it just made sense to put a wheel on it. And so that's what we did. And when we, you know, the first time we made it, there was no intention of ever producing this for sale. But as soon as we published it, we started getting people asking oh us, God. like, how much is this? How much is shipping? Can and you like, ship it to Brazil? Stuff. Can you ship so, it to... <laughs> so now, you know, there's a lot of pressure on, you know, we're making... You know, the first one's very hacked together. It's not very cleanly made. So now we're trying to figure out how to make a nice, clean version that's more, you know, I guess what people expect. I love that that transmutes that way is when you call something into existence in the world, I mean, that's a, maybe the definition of art at one level is you're calling something into existence that never existed before. And from a purely aesthetic point, if it's a piece that's going in a museum, then you appreciate it at one level, but your stuff always has the air of the practical, even if it may not be entirely practical, there's a sense of something, this does something or this has some meaning or it conveys some information so I guess it's not surprising that people look at it and say, hey, I want, I want that thing, you know, make some of those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. And, and the, the inquiries kind of come from all over the place. Like I, we've had some people from ad agencies contacted us, contact us, but we've also had like a school teacher from a kindergarten contact us because the lady was like, this is super <laughs> practical for schools. And I'm assuming you guys are art history nerds like I am. And there's a little Marcel Duchamp in this, too, when I see it. Uh-huh. Well, you're, you're in New York City, right? Uh, right. So you can just walk to the, the, the uh, Museum of Modern Art and see uh, – what mm-hmm. is this? It's not in advance of the broken arm. It's called the um, – well, I've forgotten. But it's the, fi- the yeah, I don't remember bicycle the wheel on the yeah. stool. On the one stool, of his ready-mades. Yeah. And I, I looked at this. My first reaction was, it's, oh, it's Duchampian. But no, but it's also practical. His stuff was purposely not practical. And this has the utility. It also reveals, I think, as I look around the body of work you've done, you have, the two of you have an enormous number of skills. Um, I know some in common and some 
unique to each other. Uh, things like you can see welding, software design, hardware design, um, various uh, you know hand skills that come in play. It seems like you have a big repertoire of choices to make because you have all of these abilities that you know many people do not, but you're wielding them in the use of, of creating practical or artistic things. How do you go about? Do you do you have a intent of I want to make a kind of thing, and then you figure out what you have or what you need to know to make it? Or do you get compelled, you know, I want to do a welding project and I'm going to go do some welding and, and feel the form that way? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think <laughs> most, yeah, mostly the first way I would say yeah. is we come up with an idea and then figure out how, what skills we need and what we need to teach ourselves in order to make it happen. Mm. Yeah. So you'll go out and you'll acquire what you need to know for a project. You'll say, I don't know how to do uh, make an iOS app, so I'm going to go learn how to do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's kind of what we learned in grad school is this this way of working where it's like, oh, I know this is possible because, you know, something similar to this is out in the world. I know people have this skill. But then you're just like, oh, I can also just learn it and figure it out myself instead of having someone else do it. Well, you went to a fascinating graduate school, both of you. I see the Interactive Telecommunications Program at uh, New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. Tell me about that program, because I've read about some in other countries. Uh, I didn't know what was going on in this country. It's, it's a multidisciplinary approach to, to art right. or to, uh, to technology? Both. It's, I mean, you, I mean, my prediction, you're going to have a lot more people from ITP on the show. Uh, it's an amazing school. Um, and it's, it's exactly what you said. It's a combination of technology, art, and design. Um, but the, you know, the classes that you can take there are so widespread that you can carve out your own path. Um, but they do revolve around software programming, which is one of the core classes, electronics, like physical computing, which is another, another core class. Uh, and then really mostly just collaborating. So the students that end up at the school come from such a wide background. Like people in my thesis class were like people who had a dance background, a lawyer, an English major, computer science majors, uh, architects, I don't know. They're just like kind of all over the place and each person brings a different skill to the table. So we ended up collaborating a lot with other students coming up with weird projects that only we wanted. And we kind of either found people that could help us or we would just figure it out ourselves and make it happen. I like the spirit of collaboration that uh, I think I keep finding again and again um, with uh, maybe it's a characteristic of who I'm looking for to talk to is that None of this is uh, in isolation anymore. People aren't locking themselves up and creating something proprietary and locking it down or, or again, locking themselves in the studio and not getting feedback. It seems like both in-person, you know, in face-to-face feedback and collaboration and then all the tools that are available for Internet collaboration or even you know, the water cooler that Twitter can be seems to bring people together to more readily exchange ideas than I, I think has happened I feel like we reached some kind of inflection point a couple of years ago, and so many of the new companies and interesting things that are happening seem to be the basis of community and collaboration. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, starting with ITP it has such a... For me, it's like the best thing that happened is the community that we have at ITP, which is a really small, really tight community. 
we're also, you know, now that after launching the Kickstarter campaign, we're also connected with a whole bunch of other makers who also produce projects on Kickstarter. And so there's this common thread we have between each other. So now we're collaborating or getting help from other Kickstarter uh, people, like people who've launched Kickstarter campaigns, because they've seen what we've done, we've seen what they've done, and you start reaching out and connecting with people that way too. So you did a fascinating project. You mentioned that the Kickstarter campaign. This was your uh, pen type A. Uh, worked with a. Um, I don't know this pen type. Is this something? Is an architect pen type people love, or is it a design tool? Uh, a lot of illustrators like writing with it. A lot of designers. It's a Japanese ink cartridge that we've always written with and we love. So we wanted to make a pen that was based around that. So high high tech C is that the right name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that, it's, so it's a cartridge. It's a cartridge, but it has yeah. a cheap plastic housing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of nice. had a cult following, I guess, in the U.S. So you know, I'm, I was born and raised in Japan, and in Japan, the pen is popular it's everywhere and it's readily a- available everywhere so it's not really cult it doesn't have a cult following in japan it's kind of just everywhere but then in the u.s it's not so available so then it has this you know has more of a cult following and so you know and we'd been using it for a while so we loved it and we thought we wanted we wanted to make it have a better housing something that lasts longer and we thought, you know, we knew there was a small cult following in the U.S., but never imagined it to be as big as it has appeared to be. Yeah. Uh, I should tell listeners the details, too. So you, you launched a campaign in July of 2011. You were looking for $2,500 and raised uh, $282,000. That must have been a little surprising yeah. when yes. the numbers started. Flying. Yeah, we were, you know, I think within 12 hours we hit, our goal of $2,500 and we were jumping up and down, high-fiving each other and we're like, oh my God, this is awesome. We made it. And then, you know, and at the blogs, I think at that point hadn't even picked it up. So it was really just between a few friends and families that were like, oh, and we were, you know, like, great. At least some of our friends and family (laughs) really want to support us and make this happen. And then, uh, blogs started picking it up and then it turned into a whole other thing. It gets out of control when you have design um, items now, it seems like. there's, it, you know, I want to say there's partly a fetishism of it and then there's utility. So uh, I think a lot of projects that were very design-oriented in 2010 and 2011 got these crazy, like, unpredictable uptakes because the design community has never had an outlet. There's, you know, you buy things from Koinor or Rapidograph or whatever on that side, you're buying things from major companies and there might be some desire to get one thing or another, or even as you say, this high tech C pen, there might be a cult following form from it, but you were just buying that pen. You'd find it, you'd, you know, go to an international town, um, Seattle, we have, we have I town once, once, uh, once Chinatown, once Japantown, now it's international district, I think. Right. So <laughs> you go there and there's a giant uh, Japanese uh, grocery store, department store. And I could probably walk in there and get a whole selection of these things, but I'm still buying it from a big company. And it seems to me that Kickstarter broke out the ability for craftspeople who are working in, in the design community space and areas I mean, field notes didn't launch through Kickstarter, but field notes has that same feel. It's something that you wouldn't have known there was a market for, but then when the market finds it, there may be millions of people of interest. And in the end, uh, I think it's what you had 4,000 plus backers for the pen type a, but you know, you only need to capture a tiny percentage of a tiny percentage to have brought in this much cash for a project. 
Right. Yeah, it's amazing. I totally agree. I think for us, it's changed the way we think about design. And every designer we talk to, we're always like, you know, this is changing it. If you haven't already done it, you've got to do it because you have nothing to lose. And it'll open up, you know, it'll connect you to these people that you couldn't otherwise connect to. Well, I always talk about finding an audience. And does Kickstarter, they're, I think of them as being a pretty thin intermediary in many ways because they take a small fee and they don't try to build a social network and plug you into it. They let you have a relationship. But how much does Kickstarter or their mechanisms intercede between you and the people who you're uh, – you know, either selling to or marketing to or, or talking to, are they a, a gatekeeper in that sense or do they facilitate having that conversation? I think they, so they facilitate having that conversation, but a lot of it I think is based on the brand of Kickstarter right now that a lot of people know about it. And when they see projects popping up on Kickstarter, they're presented in a way and built with tools on the Kickstarter website that, that make it very accessible for people from outside to come in and really like trust and understand what's going on and feel that they can be part of a community. That's very mm-hmm. interesting. That's so it's, they're creating a safe space then, but, um, but you can still talk to the people who are your audience for a project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very interesting. It's, and I know you had, I know this was, um, this was very challenging. I, and this is almost every conversation about Kickstarter starts with, I know this was very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> and often, I mean, I'm not talking to people, only people who've had, um, crazy scales of success, like a hundred times the goal. I, uh, last week's program, I talked to the folks at, at Lumi who make a fabric dye, a, a solar, uh, UV sensitive fabric dye, and they, we're very pleased because they were able to fulfill their project uh, last year. Um, it was way oversubscribed, but because they were making a die as opposed to individual um, machine items, they were able to fulfill just about on time. And they're sort of proud of themselves, and they had planned it that way, but they had they were further along in production. And I think they're almost unique, as almost every Kickstarter project of any scale, and especially the ones that scale beyond, you know, far beyond the original expectations are late. And I know you feel bad about that. I've read updates and so forth. I know it wasn't delightful, but how, how did that come about? I mean, you were expecting to do one scale of projects. Did you have one manufacturing process in mind? And then as the numbers crept up, you're making calls to see what you can scale to in terms of quantity. Yeah, we were super naive about it. I mean, we've, we've produced stuff, machined objects before but never in quantities in the thousands so we you know we were naive thinking we could whatever you know whatever quantity above a hundred we get in terms of orders we can still fulfill that the same way is essentially how we thought about it and obviously we were dead wrong about that you know we knew there's a difference between making prototypes and then going to production but there's actually a whole, there's another threshold that you cross once you build a few thousand pieces of the exact same thing over and over. And it also depends on the types of mechanisms that you use to fabricate the actual thing. We were under the impression, at least in my head, I feel like such an idiot saying this right now because now I know that it's not like that at all. But we were under the impression that things were made by machines these days. And we thought that with metal, you know what, they're going to be making these things with machines. And you can't really go that wrong if you're working with a machine. And that's not the case at all. 
Do you know what I found out a few years ago, and I believe this is still the case, is all the fluorescent light bulbs with the twists in them, the compact fluorescents, mm-hmm. yeah. those those are done by hand. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, yeah. it doesn't surprise yes. you now, right? No, and I was like, I was like, how can they produce a billion? Because mm-hmm. there's a manufacturing economy in China and some other countries where the the wage to output ratio is still it's getting worse. It's gonna it's you know the wage in China is going up all the time relative to the rest of the world. So that won't be affordable at some point. But yeah, so you. You were hoping or you thought this is a cast process or a machined process. How much of the pen wound up having to be – which components have to be made by hand then? So there's there's kind of a difference between making things – what most people imagine making something by hand. You'll picture like somebody sitting there with a file and making something. <laughs> but that's not yeah. really what we mean by made by hand. Uh, there's the second step, which is operating manually manually operated machines. So you have um, – you have like lathes, a lathe. and you yeah. have a drill press, but you do everything by hand, and you have some jigs to help you out, but it's not a CNC machine, like a computer numerically controlled machine, where you'd have a computer telling the lathe where to stop and where to cut. Now, you could, it is possible to do it at that level, but the cost is dramatically higher, or is it not possible for some of what you wanted to do to be done by computer control? Uh, it's totally possible, and it's what we expected. Uh, and to our surprise, you know, we realized that in China that's not the case. Like, even if they say they're using CNC machines, they actually won't. And so now we don't, you know, to get the kind of production that we want at the accuracy that we want, we are making everything with uh, CNC machines in the U.S. Fascinating. And the cost differential has to be there. But if you remove some of the labor, does it cost two times? Well, I mean, actually, I'll, I'll ask you about that because during the Kickstarter campaign, I know it was $50 was sort of the, if you wanted a basic pen type A. And in the campaign, you said, we expect this will cost about $99 retail. You're selling it for $150 on your store. Does that reflect some of the differential in, in price in manufacture? Yeah, that's exactly where all that came from. We were actually hopeful to bring it to the U.S. and still have it at the ninety-nine dollar price. But after, you know, after getting it into production, all these, you know, there are there's a huge difference in costs between China and the U.S. And so that had to get reflected in the retail price. It's so fascinating because we're oh boy, I've had so many conversations, and one of the first was with uh, with Chris Anderson about his um, drone. A project, uh, 3D Robotics, and it was that in his book um, about uh, makers, he talks about this kind of cycle of scale. Is like you can make things at a certain scale really, um, you know, not easily, but you know how to make it by hand. Like when you were making prototypes, you were running the lathes, right? And you were doing things where you'd go to a shop and they'd make something for you, and then you scale up from that. You're like, oh, we can't do this ourselves. We have to hire people. And it's, okay, well, now we ship it out. All right, well, no, they can't do it, so we have to go to the next level, and now we're punching ca- – you have to get $100,000 molds made or something and be pouring steel into sheets <laughs> that are pre right? I mean, it scales up and up and up, doesn't yeah. it? You could, if you were making 100,000 of these a year, you would be using different processes than making uh, a thousand or thousands, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We'd be extruding our own stuff and honing <laughs> it down, and yeah, it'd be a whole other process. You know, I had this conversation years ago with the folks who make this um, tea strainer 
I've forgotten the name now. It's terrible. It's this great. I'll put it in the show notes. Listeners, I'll put it in the show notes. It's, it was a, a metal tea strainer with a, a sleeve that retracted, and I wrote a little article about it for ID Magazine like a decade ago. And they had this problem. They were actually bicycle designers and other things. And so this is, this. I think, the same thing they encountered. They assumed that it was a mesh strainer with a solid steel part, and there's a bit that had to be soldered on the bottom. They thought it would be mostly machine-made, and they looked around America, and 10 years ago, I think it was a harder sell. They couldn't find anyone who could make it, not even affordably, but just period, who would be willing to work with tubular steel and so forth. They go to sources in China they knew through bicycle-making partners, and again, everything done absolutely by hand. They had to work with tolerances and so forth, but it was an affordable price. Now, I don't think they can make their thing, I think it actually is too much manual labor to be made. They switched to a, or they added a plastic model because I think of the ease of getting plastic cast or, or dot, you know, um, uh, uh, I forgot the process name. We use um, injection molded. Yeah, injection molded as opposed to working with uh, stainless steel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. <laughs> it's funny. So you got confronted with it wasn't, but you. So you say you're really naive, but you had a sense of how these things work, but not when you reach the scale. Each of these steps of scale took it further and further out of the realm with which you were familiar. I think yeah, it's partly the scale, but also we were very naive about what happens in China. You know, we went in very hopeful and in our heads forward thinking about what's possible in China because we've heard all the nightmare stories that everybody hears people you know we know people that have done it and we've heard it over and over but we also knew people in China that were doing great things so we're like you know it's possible and we just had to give it a try we knew if we wanted to meet our price point that we thought was reasonable at the time, we'd have to make it in China. And so we went in thinking that's what we were going to do and that they were going to be able to do it. <laughs> so in the, in the end, it took um, some months longer. But you finished fulfilling them. It was last October. And people received products over – it was over a few months as you received batches and you were happy with them. You were shipping out over uh, last summer through October? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we started shipping, I guess, last February, and it took probably eight months to ship everything. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. I mean, looking at that with the Pebble Watch now, too, where they, I mean, in this, you know, these guys, you could say you were naive because you had to manufacture something on this scale. These guys had, you know, worked in scales of that level before, and even they were daunted with the number of pieces that I think didn't come together the way they thought. Or uh, Casey at Elevation Dock, where they were delayed by a few months, then got hit by the lightning cable change and iPhones and iPads. And, you know, Casey, he'd made, and his partners, they'd made stuff before. I met him at the um, XOXO conference. They were really wry about it, but they didn't set out thinking, I mean, they'd, they'd gotten all the relationships together. So even with people who had the fewest scales on their eyes about what was going on and had the most experience, even at that level, you're still having the same problem that making physical things is hard, it's right? Really it's really hard. hard. It's really hard. <laughs> I mean, I, so we have an elevation dock. It's such an awesome piece and we're waiting for a pebble. And, you know, I think there's a big, like now that we've been through it, obviously we were super late and we feel bad about it. But also, you know, we see other Kickstarter campaigns going through the same thing. And we're like, that's, I guess, what it takes. You know, you can't, not everything goes right. Everything that could go wrong usually does go wrong. 
And I, you know, I wish more people would just understand that. But we're also, you know, we also learned a lot. And I think in our next campaign, Kickstarter campaign, we're going to be super ready. (laughs) Yeah. We're not going to make the same mistakes twice. Well, you've got relationships now and you know how things work and you know how, you know what you can do here. This is the, I think another thing that keeps coming up when I talk to people who make physical objects and, you know, there's the sort of software is a whole other thing. There's all kinds of things that delay software, of course, too. You can never predict how long a software project will take to finish as you you guys will know. But on the, on the hardware and the physical manufacturer side, the, the rise in things like 3d printing, like when you started this, would you have had a 3d printer? I mean, you guys were ahead of the the curve. So maybe you did have one at that time, but would you start a project now and say, we're going to have a device in house or everything we do, we're going to run through multiple prototype phases at a level you couldn't have done when you planned this two years ago. Yeah. It's changing so quickly. Having a 3d printer changes our prototyping cycle, like maybe 10 times because we used to have to wait for 3d prints to come back. And now we go through, you know, 3d print iterations of, a product we're designing maybe three or four times in a day. Oh, that's like, so great. While amazing. we're eating dinner. Yeah. It's really mm-hmm. amazing. Right. And I keep talking to folks about like, we're not even at 1.0. Like these are early, early, right. like, I mean, they're not beta cause they work, but we're at like 0. 0.05 yeah. release. Cause yeah. there's, there's, there's nowhere near the potential being tapped yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's going to get so much faster, so much more accurate and so much, you know, I think even getting to production, type materials you know so that you could have a little factory at home which is really what we want to do like we've after the pen kickstarter campaign we talked a lot about what our next project is going to be and we seriously considered making one of the constraints to have every single process of making the product in-house like use that as a constraint and figure out what we can make with that seem like a good challenge that's not what we're doing anymore but i'm still you know i'm still hopeful that in in the very near future we'll be able to come up with the products that we can completely have control over in-house and not have to hire you know not have to hire employees is also another thing like you know we can you know if we bought cnc machines and like cnc lades and the laser cutter and all these things we'd have to run a shop which is not what we want to do but we also want to have full control over the manufacturing process. This definitely is something that comes out of a design education, I think, is uh, I was trained as a graphic designer, and mm-hmm. the way I was trained by the Swiss, the scars, I still have the scars. And, uh, <laughs> no. But the, uh, no, they were great. The Swiss were great. And anyway, the, uh, the, but one of the things was this idea I talk about in a lot of the podcasts was, was iteration, as you were talking about in this prototyping stage that you could do now. But it was also the notion that you approach something you're trying to do as a problem, that it's a problem and there's all these constraints and solutions you can put on it. And if you have every tool available to you, you're going to produce something worse than if you only have some tools available to you. So like Elevation Doc, one of their constraints was they want to make everything in the United States. And I think in the end, like 5% of the parts, like some cables, I think they could not get made here. So they had a source. And of course, they had huge problems with the quality of the leads and the cable construction and consistency was one of the big problems, you know. But uh, but that was a constraint. Or Field Notes, for instance, they also had that constraint. They said we want to make everything in the United States and partly from a control and being able to see parts of the process and partly just from a, we think we can do this. So it sounds like you have that same issue. You were thinking, 
we're going to take some of the constraints off or, or we're going to put the constraints on rather that we'll do it all in house. We don't have to have outsource, but as you explore it, you find all of the shackles that that puts on you as well. That limits yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I think for now it's like a side project, like definitely. So we do have a few products that we are going to bring to market and all of them have the, this overall constraint of being manufactured in the U S it's um, not so even a constraint like, anymore. It's, like, it's yeah, we just can't, a given. Yeah, we it's, can't do I, anything else. It's actually li- a liberating thing. It's not <laughs> a constraint. Yeah. But I, think- I hear this so much. I just this inshoring thing is. I know that a lot of you know this huge amounts of large companies are still going to be making all their stuff in China. But I can't tell you how many conversations I've had like this where people said we tried it. Uh, it just we can't the control the precision the trust of contractors of subcontractors of subcontractors of subcontractors. So you don't know who's actually making the thing, even though you've contracted with someone to do it. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. totally it. <laughs> yeah. So the next things you make, it'll all be made in the U.S. because then you can, if you need to, you can visit a factory, right? You can make a phone call within a three-hour time difference and so forth. Right. Yeah, it makes a huge difference on our psyche. Like the, it's the stress level that we had to deal with because the factory was on the other side of the planet was just not worth the, the money that you save. Well, and you also, I think I hear this too, is you have the legal system here that is more effective if something goes wrong or contract law and the ability to get things delivered as as you want. I keep hearing those as issues too. And the quantities, I, I imagine the products you're going to make are going to be the same kind of thing like um, pen type A, that it's going to be a refined product. It's going to be something that appeals to a certain audience where price will be an issue, but it's not going to be the issue for them. It's So you don't have as much of the the um, issue of having to get something down to the lowest possible price. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. Are you talking about what you're making next? Do you have any hints about the the sort of thing or yeah. things? Yeah. I'd love to know. We have um, we have a backpack that's in the works, uh, and it's it's a challenge for us, I guess, because it's a soft good um, compared to what we're not. Well, there are some machined metal parts for it, but it's mostly it's fabric, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Um, and that's going to be made in Brooklyn. But that's actually one of those projects that we considered doing it in-house. Doing it 100% in-house. Like, I would sew every single bag because, Cut you all know, the pieces. We know how to sew. We, we sold every prototype we made. And we could do it. You know, so that's sort of a fallback backup plan. But we are looking at a manufacturer in Brooklyn to help us make those right now. So what's the C, W, and T twist on the backpack? So it can't just be a backpack. What is it? That's, does it, is, it is it wearable technology? Is it? No, wearable? there's no tech involved. It's very low tech, uh, actually. Uh, how much can we say? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to come soon. So maybe we'll just keep that as a surprise. That's great. Well, I also, you know, I'm hearing this also from a number of people I've talked to who are often very high tech or making, you know, machined products who they have to go to that other side too. They have to make the thing that's a very physical, very non-tech thing as well to keep things in balance. So they're not completely sucked inside the machine. Yeah. Yeah. I think we go in waves. Like sometimes we're all we do is software for the three months. And then I think right now, actually right now we're sort of in between. We're we're like 50% software, 50% hardware. It's just is it just um, you two guys right now? You don't have you have people help at times, but really you're doing the production of the of your studio? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just, just two just of us. us. 
It's a lot of volume. I get this too. I, I'm a fairly productive person and I get the, uh, <laughs> how many of them are you there? And I'm like, no, no, I just am very efficient with my time, I think. <laughs> but uh, but it, yeah. I think it's interesting all the different elements that you like to explore here. I, looking also at your site, the, the blockhead, which is sort of a fascinating thing. It seems like you're almost trying for a brutalist um, you know, design style, but crazily functional. But I notice you say, this isn't for everybody. You know, This may not work for you. It's kind of sharp angled, you know. What do you want? Like, where, where do you come to a design like that? That's, that is, I mean, it's really neatly aesthetic in one sense. It's a big piece of aluminum, but it's also, it seems contrary to a lot of the conventional designs and bicycles. And it's contrary to maybe the, the position now that everything has to be smooth, contoured, buffed, um, you know, have a perfect mirror finish. Where do you come to make something like that? Yeah. So originally when we set out to make that, that was actually our first collaborative design project uh, that we made right after grad school. And at the time, we were both building bikes, and we were searching online for parts to put the bikes together, and we came to the stem, and there wasn't a stem that we could find that we really liked. And a lot of the stems, the bike stem is a, the part of the bike that holds the handlebars to the fork, and that's its job. It's a super simple job. And a lot of the bike stems that are out there are very aerodynamic-looking. They're they're over-engineered to be super light, whereas the blockhead stem, it is exactly what it looks like. It just holds your handlebars to your fork. It's a solid piece of aluminum, and it just does that. It's a solid block of aluminum. I love that. And yeah. Aluminum is a very American product, I think, right? Because we make a, we smelt a lot of aluminum with a, you know very cheap hydroelectric power. So I think that was one of the things with Elevation Dock. They chose aluminum as well. And I don't know if they're buying it. There's a huge plant not very far from where they are. So I don't know if they're buying it locally when they're buying tons of aluminum. But there's something very um, – I mean, Apple loves aluminum, as we well know, too. Yeah. It's a great – it's got a great feel and look. But it's something funny about just this big block of the thing. You're shaving away the aesthetic part of it in, in favor of the pure function, but it functions very well for what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Maybe, is that a statement? Am I just – if I summed up your entire – I think so. <laughs> your operation. Yeah. I, look, I love – like, for instance, the That's Crow's cool. Flight, I think, is a great – project too it's a gps well you you explained though but a gps without all the folder roll of a gps yeah we so that is one of the things that we use quite a bit when we're overseas and the whole idea of the app came from i forget what country we're in but we had our phone we didn't have a phone plan in whatever country we were in but we still wanted to use the GPS feature, you know, use the GPS antenna to get around. And so we were brainstorming what we could possibly build that could do that. And the thing that, so one of the projects I built in grad school was sort of like that. It was a, it wasn't an app, but it was a physical device. It looked like an egg that had motors in it so that the egg would bend its waist and, <laughs> sort of nudge you in the direction that you should walk, but it only just point in the direction. It doesn't do turn by turn. And one of the things we realize is that's kind of all you need. So whenever you walk up to a corner and you ask, you know, where is, you know, how do I go get to Broadway Lafayette? People can just like point to the direction. They don't really have to give you turn by turns to get you there. And so that launched the whole idea of the app, which is just an arrow that points in the direction of your destination. And the way it's built, you can just load all your destinations 
when you have a connection. So the way we use it, we're in a hotel, we have a Wi-Fi connection, we load up all the places we want to go. And then once you're out there, you don't need data anymore. You don't need a data connection anymore. You can just you know, reload all the places you've had saved and it'll just point to each one of those places to get to. So it's really turn by turn without telling you what any of the turns are. Yeah, well, so it's not, it's not turn, turn by, by turn. turn. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, de- is it dead it's, reckoning? It's, exactly. You go, so ah. it's, and what makes it really, int- this is not intended to be this way, but now when we go to cities and we use new cities and we use this app to get around, we have to find our own path, which makes it way more interesting to navigate the city. <laughs> you know, because part of it is like figuring out how the city's grid works. Like New York is really simple because it is a straight grid, but other cities, you know, have like big avenues that run diagonally next to a perpendicular grid system. And so you kind of learn the city in a different way because all you have is an arrow saying, you know, you want to walk through five of these blocks to get there. And so you have to decide if you're going to turn left or right to get to that final destination. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. I didn't realize even that. So it's really, it's, it's really interesting. So it tells you how far you have left yeah. to go and it gives you the direction you should be heading. And then, so how many times do you wind up at a river with no bridge? <laughs> and then you, as I come up, you walk back and because every city, every city in Europe has yeah. so many rivers. I'm trying to through. think maybe, yeah, like in it's Amsterdam, like Amsterdam's kind of tough because it's like concentric <laughs> rings of streets. Yeah. Yeah. A million bridges, little bridges over the over the canals. It's funny, but so but I think that's neat that you're deconstructing the idea of what a GPS should be. Everyone lards on more and more and more. I reviewed a million GPS apps for MacWorld over a few years, and I found that like what I really wanted was the least possible, the, the most least possible mm. information, and a lot of them gave me the most yeah. possible. Yeah, we're trying to do the exact opposite, and I think it also. So I actually still use this in New York City, even though we have, you know, a U.S. phone. And part of the reason I find it really useful is that it doesn't break your stride when you're walking with this thing. So sometimes I use a map. When I use a map, I have to stop and look at the map, orient myself, and then decide where to turn next versus just having an arrow point in the general direction is something I can glance at while I'm still walking and not break my stride as I'm trying to get to the place I'm going to. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I love to be able to use it in the subways, but I think I would get lost (laughs) then. Uh, Especially when you're building new ones in New York City. It's very confusing. I just visited it, and my whole map of 10 years ago is completely off now. I don't know where to go. (laughs) It's fascinating to see folks who you've had a lot of of, uh, commercial success and interest in what you do, but you still have this incredible core of your own artistic expression and vision that is clear you stay true to, and you're constantly surprised what it feels like, as we talk about this, at which things get called out, that you don't know, even when you make these, what is going to be the thing that people go, that's it. Yeah, that's true. It's always a surprise to us, but it's a good, fun (laughs) surprise. It's great to have your audience surprise you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll look forward to the next product when we hear more about the backpack and whatever is coming mm-hmm. next. And thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Thank so, you much, so much, Ben. Pleasure to have it's you. It's great to talk. This is The New Disruptors, a podcast about bridging the connection between creation and attention. You can find us on the web at muleradio.net slash new disruptors. On Twitter and ADN, we are at new disruptors. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app or through iTunes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, visit sponsor.muleradio.net. 
you can drop me a note via newdisruptors at muleradio.net. Our theme music was composed by my dear friend Jeff Tolbert. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Join us again next time.